Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We mentioned that from the very beginning, there is not a page of Quran except you will find the day of judgment or the hereafter mentioned. We mentioned that there are is a considerable body of hadith literature which is authenticated um, such that people like Imam al-Baghawi in his kitab Sharh al-Sunan, you know, he has this massive section on it. Uh, Imam al-Bukhari does, Imam Muslim, Sayyidina Imam al-Tirmidhi, Imam Abu Dawood, Imam al-Nasai and Imam Ibn Majah, all of them will find in their texts um, a considerable amount of, of information dedicated to the end of times. Our concern is not necessarily the text. Anybody can have access to a text. Our concern is how we understand and then engage and then apply texts. And that's what we talked about last time. Some of the foundational uh, principles used by religious Islamic scholars throughout history when engaging in, in texts. We're going to continue now to, to layer that discussion, uh, focusing on uh, some principles for about 30 to 45 minutes, uh, and then we'll take your questions. And then over the next few weeks, we'll begin to examine um, specific incidents and text. And hopefully by the time you're done, you will have a familiarity with kind of the chronological order of things, because that was one of the conditions that we talked about that, you know, when we're invoking a, a hadith that talks about the end of times, we have to make sure that it is in the proper context and the proper order. And I give the example of the Hajj stopping and people using COVID as a way to say that the end of times was here. Um, a few other examples, the, the, the hadith about Hutta in Syria was another one, and, and so on and so forth. There has to be like a chronological kind of uh, a respect for the chronological order of things, as mentioned in the authentic hadith. And we're going to talk about the lot, a lot when we get to Mehdi. Uh, and then, and then uh, we talked about how we have to make sure that it's coming from a correct source. And that takes us now to one of the warnings that Islam uh, unapologetically gives us, and that is that it warns us from learning from fraudulent sources uh, or, or, or sources which uh, claim to know, say, something of the unseen. Um, Islam is very clear in warning us of, about staying away from, the, from those things unless... Of course, it's coming from prophets and, and, and revelation. And that's why in the science of Usul al-Din, it's called a sam'iyat, the things that we have to hear. A sam'iyat uh, means al-ghaybiyat. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the sixth chapter of the Qur'an, verse number 143, after a'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim, that who is worse than the one who lies about Allah? Who lies about Allah? And here meaning Allah, His religion, the Prophet, uh, And we know that actually this is a sign of the hour, right? When, when ignorance becomes kind of permeates society. The authentic hadith of the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, who said, that indeed, near to the, the you know, the, the, the establishment of the hour are days where ignorance will become spread, it will permeate society. And knowledge will be removed. And murder, because they asked the Prophet, what is haraj? Haraj with ha, al-haraj, afwan. And they asked the Prophet, what is haraj? And he said, murder, killing. And the Prophet said, من أشرات ساعتي أن يقل العلم ويظهر الجهل. And the Prophet, both these hadith are related by Imam al-Bukhari, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said from the, the ashrat of the sa'ah, from the signs of the hour, is that the, the knowledge uh, will be less and that ignorance will increase. Actually, Hadiyah, that's a great question. You can find a recording 
at the ICNYU uh, YouTube page as well as on my on my podcast. So everything I'm recording here, I repost later on the podcast. May Allah bless you uh, and thank you for asking uh, this question. You know, Imam Matic, actually, there's a very interesting narration um, from uh, regarding one of his teachers, Rabi'ah uh, ibn Abdurrahman, who uh, uh, Sayyidina Imam Matic says that, you know, uh, a man visited Rabi'ah, and he found him crying, weeping. And he asked him, like, what's upset you? Has there been some type of tribulation which has befallen you? And he said, no, but people are giving fatwa who have no knowledge. What's disturbing me, and, and here we see that Rabi'ah understood the amana of the religion, the importance of religion. One of the challenges that we face living in an age of the domestication of the sacred is that religious knowledge isn't really respected. The economic system in the world, the political and military system, the entertainment system, broader culture is driven by, by an animosity towards the sacred. Because the sacred ideally leads to equality amongst people. It should. Right? Right, Islam should lead to, to justice and equality. So we'll talk about the hadith later on that the Prophet said from the signs of the hour are people with whips. And the ulama mentioned these are the people of oppression. Some ulama have taken that hadith and said these are the leaders of the Muslims uh, in this age who abuse uh, and, and, and uh, have no regard for human dignity. So Rabi'ah, he understood the trust of knowledge and he said, you know, I've seen in my time, and this is very close to the time of the Prophet, alayhi salatu salam, Rabi'ah is from the Tabi'een, or the Tabi, Tabi'een according to some, you know, people giving answers about religion who have la ilmalahu, who don't have knowledge. And then he said, وَظَهَرَ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ أَمْرٌ عَظِيمٌ and this is something like really, really serious. This is, is, is really serious. Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, who is the son of Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. The, the, the son of Abi Bakr, of course, who was raised in the house of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Right? We, we should avoid the sectarianism that is on display in the Muslim world now. The son of Abu Bakr Muhammad was raised in the home of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhumah. And when Sayyidina Ali became the Khalifa, he appointed Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr as the governor of Egypt. And Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was killed by people who were allies of the Amawis. So Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad is from the seven fuqaha of Medina. And his father is Muhammad, the son of Abi Bakr. And Al-Qasim said, لَإِنْ يَعِيشَ الرَّجُلُ جَاهِلًا خَيْرُ مِنْ أَنْ يَقُولَ عَلَى اللَّهِ مَا لَا يَعْلَمُ He said that a person, for a person to live ignorantly is better than someone who speaks about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his religion uh, without knowledge. So, so this is a, 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 a really important reminder that when we're talking about religious issues, we make sure that people that we're talking to have qualifications, whether we're seeing things on TikTok today, a young woman was interested in embracing Islam. And that was kind of one of the points of discussion is kind of the furnishings of religious literacy in some of the online spaces are irresponsible and in fact problematic. Listen to the statement of Amir Shakib Arsalan, one of the great, mashallah, uh, revivers of Islam. He said, Min asbab He said, one of the greatest causes for the continued um, uh, regression of the Muslim community, al-ilmu naqis, is a short, short like uh, a deficiency in knowledge. And that, that type of Deficient knowledge is more dangerous than like 
real ignorance, compounded ignorance. So like, if you think about what he's saying, it's very, it's very, very uh, to the point that a, a little knowledge which is deficient is more dangerous than ignorance. لِأَنَّ الْجَاهِلِ إِذَا قَيَّدَ اللَّهُ لَهُ مُرْشِدًا عَالِيمًا because someone that's ignorant, if they know they're ignorant and they, they run into someone who can teach them, they will listen to them and they will engage them and, and perhaps they will learn from that person and, and become better people. But as for the person that has a, a deficiency within their knowledge, he or she is not aware of that deficiency because usually a little knowledge amplifies the ego of people. And so that person will, know, will not benefit from the fact that he or she is deficient in not doing also. Like they don't know a little. They know a little and they don't know a little. And he says something funny here. He says, you know, like uh, they say that it, it, you know, it's not worth saying, but it has the same kind of vein, the same kind of. Uh, idea, but his 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 thought here is very profound. That a little deficient knowledge is more dangerous than than recognizable ignorance. Because when I'm recognizably ignorant of something, ideally I'm going to ask, going to seek to learn and grow. That takes us to the next kind of issue that the scholarship that's needed to sort of. Uh, think about the signs of the hour and their application is one that is is very now I would say interdisciplinary. Uh, I sit on the the North North American Faith Council. I sit also on the Council Council of International Muslim Scholars, led by uh, Dr. Ray Sunni from Morocco, and I know that in both of those circles, when there are issues coming up that oftentimes specialists in specific, specific fields are brought in so that you have an interdisciplinary approach which is helping tone the answer and make sure that the fiqh is not uh, going against something that is, you know, clearly obvious and clearly beneficial. And we know that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he he left ijtihad open to the ummah until the end of time. When he said, The Prophet said that if the, if the person who's qualified, right, uh, seeks to find an answer for, and here specifically a religious issue, but we could expand it to others. And he's, and he's correct or she's correct, then the reward is double. And if that person is wrong, فَجْتَهِد, and it's very important, the verb here, فَجْتَهِد means they have exerted themselves. They're not lazy, they're not haphazard, they're not sloppy. Fajtahid here means, as is, is mentioned in some of the books of Surah Fiqh, Badlu Wasa, right? To, to really exert our capacity to come to a conclusion. And that's why now you have this, this idea of important fatwa given by a group of people, because the interdisciplinary approach helps complete the condition of ijtihad. Yani fajtahid means that person works as hard as she, he or she can. And now we have what's called ijtihad jama'i. The ijtihad that's done by numerous scholars, numerous scholars of Islam, as well as others who have an interdisciplinary voice on the specific issue, because that has now exerted maximum effort. Maximum effort. And that's why fit councils are very important, and it's important that they're independent uh, and not reliant on government funding or because that also uh, taints the ability for the ijtihad to really be free in exercising capacity. But if someone does that, and they make a mistake, or he or she makes a mistake, they get one reward. Look at this hadith of the Prophet that opens up the creative imagination of the ummah of the Prophet that if people are qualified and if they try their best, and even then if they make a mistake, 
subhanallah, they are still rewarded for it because of the effort. Because human beings, they're not perfect. Uh, nobody try to use this when you're making excuses for yourself with your parents or your spouse. Right? <laughs> this is now talking about a specific situation. And Allah says in the Quran in Surah Al-Ahzab, uh, verse 35, There's no sin on you and those things which you accidentally make mistakes with, inadvertently. But the sin is upon what your hearts intend. And there's really a, a beautiful statement of, of, of some of... Uh, our scholars, but uh, about this hadith. That, that, that note that the reward that that person uh, receives who is wrong, right? And I think this is the statement of Imam uh, Al-Baghwi, uh, who says that, you know, the, the reward is not based on the mistake. But the reward is based on the effort behind the mistake. Subhanallah. So now, you know, Islamic studies teachers, right? Sheikhs and Imams, you know, when people say things that may be incorrect, but you see them really stri striving and struggling and trying to make sense of things. Remember this statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam and the statement of Imam al-Baghawi. يعني لم يرد به أنه يؤجر على الخطأ بل يؤجر في اجتهاده في طلب الحق يا سلام لأن اجتهاده عبادة والإثم في الخطأ عنه موضوع إذا لم يألو جهده يا سلام He says something so nice man. He said that in explaining this hadith, that as I mentioned earlier, the reward is not for the sin, but the reward is for that person exerting the word ishtihad is from the word jihad to work as hard as he or she could fi talabil haq to find the truth. It's so beautiful what he says because exerting one's intellectual capacity and pushing it is a form of worship. And the sin would happen only if that person did not exercise their complete capacity, subhanAllah, and put forth the best work that they could. So alhamdulillah, we, we started by talking about the, the importance of sources. And you remember that first axiom that said, we have to make sure that the sources of information about the signs of the hour and the hereafter are authentic. In particular, talking about the hadith, last week we began to talk about the preservation of the Qur'an and the different qira'at, and that's also available on the ICNYU YouTube page, and you can find the recording if you want to listen to it on my podcast at SwissCast. And leave a review, mashallah, that would be great. Barakallahu feekum, do the same for the ICNYU uh, YouTube page. And in particular, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he said that there are two areas where we tend to find a lot of fabricated hadith. One is in asbab and nuzul, like the context of why verses of the Quran were revealed. And the second are hadith that talk about the end of times. So it's very important that we make sure that we are taking it from authentic sources. Then that takes us to the second thing, and that is to make sure that the understanding of the authentic source is correct. We have examples of this from the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Ali ibn Abi Hatim, who is one of the companions of Sayyidina Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he read in Surah Al-Baqarah about uh, fasting, right? until the white thread and the black thread are distinguished from one another. He understood that this is a Sahabi who lives with the Prophet who is around the great, you know, uh, thinkers uh, in the Prophet's community, Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima and Sayyidina Umar and Sayyidina Abu Bakr and all those incredible people, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum and all, all those 
other people. And, and subhanAllah, still he misunderstood a verse in Surah Al-Baqarah. If that is someone who lived in the time of Sayyidina Muhammad, what about you and I? So the second thing is not only do we make sure we have access to authentic information, which is perfectly acceptable to ask a teacher or someone giving a lecture, is this from, what, where is that source? What's, where is the source of that information? That's not a sign of disrespect. That's a sign of respect and trust. What else would you want as a teacher? And then second, to make sure that the understanding of the text is there. And that's why we talked here momentarily about scholarship. What I would like to do is just share with you some conditions of religious scholarship that are general in nature, uh, that you can maybe use as you engage and learn, as well as you hear from others and maybe you want to ask questions or try to understand or evaluate certain things that you hear. Uh, but 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 in, in general, uh, we need to make sure that any opinions related to a specific area of religious studies is coming from someone who has some type of academic expertise in that field. So even though I went to Azhar and I studied there for almost eight years, there are, for example, Islamic economics. I'm, I, I'm horrible at that. I'm very bad at it. I'm not good at it. So I defer answers on that to other people. I'm, I'm, I'm not good at that. There's many subjects within the canon of Islamic studies that I am, I am anemic at. So I have to recognize that and realize that I am not good in everything. I haven't studied everything. So the idea that an imam or a religious teacher has to be like an encyclopedia, this is incorrect. It's unfair. It's irresponsible. And then it creates a problem. I remember one time I was in Mecca uh, years ago and I had on a, a dash dasha, you know, a, a thobe, like the Arab thobe. And this lady from, from uh, a certain Arab country, she came up to me and I was, you know, with my group of people there. Uh, and we ask Allah to emancipate and free the people of Yemen. You know, everyone who's going to Umar and Hajj, don't forget the Yemenis. And make dua for them and try, try to think about how you spend your money while you're there. But subhanAllah, this woman came to me and we know there's a blockout now in Yemen. SubhanAllah, no internet. You know, things have become increasingly difficult for them. We ask Allah to bring justice to them, inshaAllah. So that woman, she came to me and she said to me, Anta Shaykh, are you like a Shaykh? I said, no, I'm, I'm a student and a Talib. She said, yeah, yeah, that's what all those, those sheikhs say. When you ask them, are you a sheikh? They say they're students, so you must be a sheikh. What am I supposed to do now? This is starting to feel like an episode of parting, parting the eruption or something. So I said, how can I help you? She said, I have a question. So she started to ask me about something related to Islamic economics. So I said to her, I don't know. And then she said to me, you're not a sheikh. And she started yelling at me. You know, sheikhs are supposed to know everything. You guys, blah, 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 blah. So then I said to her, listen, I'm not, I'm not a sheikh. I'm just a simple guy from Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. But you shouldn't say that to people because then they're going to lie to you. It's perfectly acceptable for people not to know things. So what are some of the general conditions uh, when it comes to taking knowledge from people in specific subject matter? We talked about this last week when we talked about the Qira'at, that, and that's something that I, I was lucky to study in my life and continue to study actually with teachers, that oftentimes I'm hearing things online from people who I know have not studied the Qira'at. That's, that's not their expertise. Doesn't mean that they're bad or that they're, uh, you know, horrible and everything. No, but in that field, they have not been peer reviewed, if you will. So the first is that the issue goes to ahli, to the people. Uh, there's a few more conditions I have here uh, I want to share with you. And I think they will be helpful for you in general and myself. I know uh, early on as a Muslim, I, 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 I struggled 
sometimes to figure out who was who and what was what without being a jerk or without uh, being irresponsible or also taking harmful knowledge. Um, the, the, the second thing is that the knowledge is given in the right time and the right place. Right? Meaning that it's, it, it's beneficial for that situation. Whether it's good, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, reprimanding us of evil that we're doing or encouraging the good we're doing, but it is in the right mahal, the right situation, the right situation. Uh, the third is that it's, it's common now, and this again is kind of post-modernity and a post-enlightenment issue and a post-colonial issue, where you find two extremes, people who hold on to the scholarly tradition like it's revelation, and people who reject the scholarly trend, uh, tradition like it's hell. What we want to see is a balance, a respect for the scholarly tradition of Islam because it is part of our ummah, but at the same, same time, not only thinking constructively, but also critically. Reverence of scholarship without thinking constructively and critically was really a sign that we failed to benefit from that scholarship. So it's perfectly acceptable to ask questions and to engage and to, to think in ways of application and moving forward while having ihtiram, respect for those things, even that I might not agree with, that there's a way for me to, to assess that. And I think we have to be very careful of language. One of the things that we'll talk about is when, when w there's this notion of the farther we are away from Islamic scholarship in, in the academic history of the Muslim community, somehow we've gotten more progressive. This word progressive. I like to ask people, if you're progressive, where are you headed? But we see in the hadith of Sayyidina Isa about the end of times that we're going to talk about, those 75 authentic hadith, that the Prophet ﷺ said that Isa will return and he will rule by the sharia of Muhammad and there will be peace on earth such that, and this is hyperbolic, children, hyperbably, children will play with wolves. So is there anything more progressive than the sharia of Sayyidina Muhammad in the sense of, not, not as defined by contemporary thinkers, but is there anything better that's going to bring peace and equality and justice that even subhanAllah, the Prophet sallallahu says that when Isa comes back, there will be happiness, right? It almost sounds utopic. There will be, uh, the enemies will, will, will become friends and, and there'll be a lack of animosity. And he, he goes to a long description. So when people somehow feel that in order for me to, to somehow have a great life, I have to turn away from religion and become like, emancipated and progressive, well then what do you say about this hadith? Because it hasn't even happened yet. It's, it's, it's still, as we'll talk about in the future, quite a ways away. But obviously it's, it's, it's moving forward, if you will. So to think about making sure that the knowledge is put, mashallah, mashallah, uh, into the right context and that it has an appreciation, a cr critical and constructive appreciation for the scholarly tradition of Islam. Not that it completely rejects it because that's cool or not because it sanctifies it because also the scholarly tradition is not sacred like Quran and Sunnah. As Sayyidina Imam Madik taught us, everybody, their statement is accepted or rejected except the person in that grave. And he would point to the grave uh, of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Wasallam. The fourth condition is Adam al-ghuluf al-maslaha wal-maqasid. The fourth is that a person is not making things, looking out for the benefit to the extent that it extinguishes the presence of religion. So I'll, I'll give an example. When I first embraced al-Islam, my mother, God bless her, she used to say to me, can you move Jum'ah to Sunday? Because in her mind, if I want to translate into Arabic what she said, Right, there's a benefit for people. Of course, of course we can't do that, right? <laughs> there's no religion. Imam Shatabi says in Al-Muwafaqat to engage the maslaha, which means the benefit for people, to the point that there's no religion left, this is mafsada. So sometimes people like to employ the idea of good, the public good, what's best. But sometimes we got to 
the medicine is a little bitter, right? Sometimes the medicine can be a little bitter. Not, not everything necessarily in religion is going to agree with how I feel. So I submit to Allah Azza wa Jal. I don't submit to myself. That's kind of the primary uh, crux of Islam. So the next condition is not being irresponsible and sloppy and looking after quote unquote beneficial for the community or beneficial for the person. And in usul of fiqh we have two types of maslaha. Maslaha mu'tabara, which means a maslaha, a benefit which is recognized by sacred texts. We actually have three. The second type of maslaha is maslaha mulghi, which is a maslaha which would contradict the sacred text. So that's not seen as maslaha. That's seen as a problem. And then the third, which the Madikis we use more than anyone else, al-maslaha mursala, those masari which are not spoken about. And it's here that we employ maqasid sharia. I don't want to get too much into legal theory and my apologies for the rant. But we don't apply maqasid sharia to every single thing. We apply maqasid sharia, the objectives of sharia, when the maslaha, there's no text for or against it. Remember that. So like, I'm going to pray Fajr. Well, you know, according to the Maqasid Sharia, I have to take care of my health, so I'm going to sleep. No, 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 no. That's not, how, that's not how this works. So there are three types of benefits that we think about, especially jurists and uh, Islamic legal scholars and, and, and people involved in Islamic legal studies. One is the benefit which is recognized by the Quran and Sunnah. And there are times when that could be disputed, which is remarkable. Brilliant discussions on that. Number two is are times when a benefit is not recognized by Quran and Sunnah. So, you know, uh, violation of text. In the third one, there's no text to address that benefit. This is where the maqasid sharia are largely employed. I like to tell people, anytime someone wants to talk to you about the objectives of sharia, Ask them to tell you when the objectives of Sharia are not talked about. And that will give you a broader appreciation and spectrum for both. The fifth is Adam al Ta'aqud. The fifth is that there's also this avoidance of being extremely harsh and rigid. And that's one of the challenges. All of us now have to be very careful how algorithms are creating our personality, the impact of algorithms on the soul and the amount of engagement that they have with us at a private level, that impact is, is really the Quranic impact. That's how Quran should impact us. So we're all very much the, you know, the product of certain calculations which send us certain type of information, which affirm our thinking, and, and don't allow us to escape a monoculture and be independent thinkers. As one person told me, he emancipated himself by staying away from those things as best as he could. So oftentimes people exposed to certain things, certain information, it impacts them as religious scholars and teachers. It has to. None of us teachers, none of us are free of that. We are products of our environment. So one of the, the, the trends we see is that, you know, I have to be as hard as I can and as difficult as I can. This is not a sign of scholarship. This is a sign of being impacted, perhaps in an unhealthy way. So the fifth condition in, in scholarship is Adam at-tashaddud, is, you know, staying away from being harsh and, and burdening the people. We talked about that last two weeks ago. We said one of the conditions for interpreting the hadith of the hour is Adam taqalluf is not burdening people with things like we see certain cults do uh, in, in, in other religions. Uh, we'll move on now, inshallah, and, and we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the word ashratu sa'ah, the, the ashrat of the hour. And the word ashrat is jam'u taksir. It's a special kind of broken plural. It's been cut, if you look at it. And it's from the word sharat. Sha-ra-ta. Sheen with fatha. Ra with fatha. Sharata. Bifathataini. Wa huwa alamah. And the word sharat means a sign. A sign. 
And in particular, there's something here in language that needs to be noted. It's a sign for something other than itself. It is a sign of something other than itself. And the plural of the word sharat, so if you have a dictionary at home or you go on Google, you can type sheen rata, it's going to come up. The plural of this is ashrat. So ashratu shay'a wa'iluhu. So the ashrat of something are its beginnings. It's like its preamble. That's why we say in Arabic shurata, a shuratu, a sultan. You know the shurta? If you live in Egypt, the shurta, the police. Why is the shurta? Because they are the first signs of power. They, they, now you maybe it helps. So shurata or shuratu a sultan, those were like the the you know the uh, the regal aristocracy that would come into the the, the gathering before the, the leader. They were the signs that pomp that the leader is coming. Khalas. The word asa'a, we all know this, means hour. And specifically, we say juz'un min adzali layli wa nahar. It's a part from the adza' of a layl wa nahar. And its plural is sa'at, which is the female plural, with the alif and the ta, like muslimat, mu'minat, because asa'a ends in ta marbuta. Imam Ibn Malik. And his poem in Arabic grammar says, وَمَا بِتَا وَأَلِفٍ قَدْ جُمِعَ يُكْسَرُوا فِي الْجَرِّ وَفِينَ سْبِيكَنَا Right, so whenever we find a word that ends with at, 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 this is the uh, female plural. Also, sa, sa, also is a plural. So, the word asa in language means an hour. The word ashrat means those things which are like a precursor to something else. But in the uh, uh, religious nomenclature, a sa'a means something different. We say a sa'a is the time in which al-qiyama happens. Yawm al-qiyama. So al-waqt al-ladhi taqumu fihi al-qiyama. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for all of us. There are some interesting opinions as to why it's called a sa'a. So, one of the critical reflections on it is that for the person that is experiencing being judged, their, their judgment will seem like an hour, like their entire life will seem like an hour. Like if you and I right now, we, we, we can see this in ourselves. If we're to sit back and imagine two years of, of living in a, a pandemic, and I pray that each and every one of you are safe, inshallah. A number of people have reached out to me, losing parents, losing grandparents. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, protect us and help us. And, and uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make all of you safe uh, and secure. But if we think about those last two years, it's like you could think about everything in like five minutes. So that's why it's called asa'a, because it will happen so fast. People will, will, will be in a state of shah. Uh, Al-Raghib al-Asfahani was a great scholar from Asfahan. Uh, he was a great Shafi'i scholar. He has a book called Al-Mufradat Gharib al-Qur'an. He wrote a dictionary of the words of the Qur'an. And he says that, you know, asa'a is al-qiyamah. Yawm al-qiyamah. Allah says in Surah Al-Qamar, Verse number one, Right, the sa'a is close. وَقَالَ سُبْحَانَ وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ السَّاعَةِ They ask you about the hour. Surah Al-A'raf. Allah says in Surah Zughruf, وَعِنْدَهُ عِلْمُ السَّاعَةِ Allah alone knows the time of the hour. Another, Another opinion as to why it's called sa'a is it's like an hour away from us. Ya Allah, man. It's like an hour away. إِنَّهُمْ يَرَوْنَهُ بَعِيدًا 
They see it like it's far, we see it as, as though it's near. Subhanallah. Now, when we talk about this expression within religious terminology, Ashratu Sa'a, Imam Al-Tibi, he says, Amaratu Lisa'a. Those signs, Amara, again, is something which is evidence for something other than itself. فَهُوَ الدَّلِيلُ يُسْتَدَلَّ عَلَى غِيرِهَا أَوْ يَسْتَدِلْ بِهَا لِيَدُلْ عَلَى غِيرِهَا So Amara is something used to evidence something else. The classic example uh, scholars of Islamic philosophy give is like Dukhan is Amara tunnar. That That smoke is an Amara of fire. So Amaratu Sa'a are those signs and indicators of the hour. Another, uh, you know, some other things we can think about, but within Islamic theology, there are uh, two types of Asa'a, which is very interesting. The first is called Asa'atul Kubra, the great hour. And this is when we ask Allah to make it easy for all of us and to allow us to experience the emancipation of His forgiveness. If the dunya is breaking us down and making us sad, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we turn to Him for forgiveness to make us glad, inshaAllah. So the first is the major hour is when we will all be resurrected, resurrected for auditing. The Prophet said, لا تقوم الساعة حتى يظهر الفحش وتفحش That this, this hour, the resurrection, will not happen until you seen, see illicit behavior and people purposely acting illicit. Ask Allah to protect us. The second is called الساعة الصغرى which is the minor ساعة that's our death, man. So, two types of in Islamic theology. Just like we have different types of death. We have motul kubra, motul sughra. Motul kubra is when we leave this earth. Motul sughra is when we sleep. So, the second type of sa'a is a sughra, and that is when we die. We say like, you know, the sa'a of every person uh, is their death. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to give us, insha'Allah, husnu al-khatimah. As we finish, insha'Allah, let's talk about what are some of the fruits for our faith, for our iman, in being aware of the conditions or the preambles, if you will, the portents, perhaps, of the hour. First of all, the word Iman. The word Iman comes from a word which means tasdiq, to affirm something. And Iman, according to the majority of Ahlu Sunnah, is tasdiq al qalb, is the affirmation of the heart. They say that actions are the fruit of that affirmation, but not the actual Iman. So actions are one thing. And Iman is something else. Actions are those things which complete Iman. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِلَّا Those who believe and do good. And this is called عطف, a conjunction, to feed al-mughayyara, which means that things that are conjected are two different things. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of Surah Al-Hujurat, and we study Surah Al-Hujurat at the IC, Mass, subhanAllah, almost, uh, almost five years ago. قَالَتِ الْأَعْرَابُ آمَنَّا قُلْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا وَلَكِنْ قُولُوا أَسْلَمْنَا وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ Those Bedouins came to the Prophet and said, we believe. And the Qur'an says, don't say you believe, say you submitted, because Iman has not entered your hearts. Entered your hearts. Allah says, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ كَتَبَ اللَّهُ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ الْإِيمَانِ 
There are those in a different chapter who Allah has decreed for their hearts Iman. So Iman is the affirmation of the heart. And then saying it, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Khalas? Because the Prophet said, whoever says, La ilaha illallah, and so on and so forth, they will enter Jannah. Iman is from a word which means to trust. Allahu Akbar. We have to be very careful. We talk about this a lot, about allowing the contemporary religious discourse of other religions outside of our own within America. We cannot, as best we can, allow that to frame how we see our own religion. Our own religion has a unique set of terminologies, and that's why I spend a lot of time on terminology. It's very important, it's very emancipating. In Ezhar, in middle school actually in Ezhar, when you study tafsir, one of the first things you'll find in every lesson of tafsir is the meaning of the words. Soaking and cleansing ourselves, if you will, in the spa of Quranic vocabulary. is very important so that we protect ourselves. So iman is very different than faith. Because the word iman comes from comfort. The prophet is amin. Allah says, وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ We protected him from fear. So iman is something I find myself finding security and trust in. And that allows me to affirm it as that source of security and trust. And that's why Muslim nonprofits and religious institutions who fail to create an environment of security and trust for people and instead focus on intimidation and, 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 and creating trauma, they have failed to live up to the prophetic legacy. The prophet is Amin. And we know that Iman is defined by the Prophet who said to believe in Allah, His angels, His books, the Day of Judgment, the Day of Judgment. And under the Day of Judgment or Al-Akhirah is Ashrat Al-Sa'ah. Falls under the broader term of Al-Akhirah, thereafter. The first is that when we, when we affirm and engage in understanding these things, we are then also showing that we are responsible Muslims and that we are trying to adhere to one of the most important pillars of Islam. Allah says, الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ Those who believe in the unseen, وَبِالْآخِرَةِ هُمْ يُوقِنُونَ Those who have a strong uh, conviction uh, in the hereafter. We know the hadith of Gabriel when he came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he asked him what's his, what is faith and the Prophet said that faith is to believe in the hereafter. It's one of the things he said. Then he asked the Prophet about the signs of the hour. And after Gabriel left, the Prophet said, that was Gabriel, he came to teach you uh, your religion. Another, another important benefit for our Iman is that prophecy is a means of strengthening, strengthening our faith in the face of the tides of disbelief. We find anchoring. As the tides of disbelief begin to create instability in our lives, when we see, as we'll talk about in the future, some of the signs of the hour, these are a means of giving us firm footing as believers uh, as the tides of disbelief and atheism swell uh, around us. The third is that as a Muslim community, we find strength as an ummah, an ummah which has utterly been rocked with defeat after defeat, is economically, military, and politically subjugated to the whims of everyone, and whose leaders no longer work in the best interest of human beings. In situations like this, when it becomes very difficult to find a glimmer of hope, we, we can rally around the signs of an hour that help posit us to live for a greater purpose, a prophetic purpose. So we find strength through prophecy. And it helps us learn to love one another. Loving a Muslim now is a, an act of, I believe, restorative worship. Because hating a Muslim is so easy. It's very easy to, to, you compare any other community in America that will be talked about in the news or made fun of uh, anywhere, there's an immediate uproar. Muslims know. 
So it's very easy to fall into that, dra- that, that trap, right? Where we have a double consciousness. As we read about uh, W. D. Du Bois, right? Talking about the black community, but in particular, the Muslim community has to be very careful of double consciousness. Ralph Henry Ellison, the invisible man. In many ways, that's what it's like to be a Muslim in the room. People will make fun of us and talk about us and ridicule us without really having any concern that there may be actually a Muslim in the room. So when we see the signs of the hour in front of us, we are reminded, subhanAllah, of our importance and the love that we should have for one another and that we need one another. Another benefit is that when we see these ashrat sa'a in our lives, they are a way of creating a healthy sense of responsibility and fear. That's what Imam Safarini, one of the great Athari Hanbali scholars, said, It is incumbent upon every scholar that he or she share the hadith of the Dajjal amongst children and amongst women and amongst men. And then he says, Especially in his age, and he lived a long time ago, in which there is a lot of fitna. What would he say now? You know what I mean? if he were to, to, to see the things uh, that we see. And finally, and I think this is very beautiful as we finish, from the fruit of understanding eschatology in, in general, and then particularly uh, the signs of the hour in, in Islamic uh, theology, is hope that, that those signs of the hour are an opportunity for us to repent. So for the, the sinner, the signs of the hour can actually be a mercy, as though they are small and subtle reminders telling us, get right, you still got some time, you still have an opportunity to change. As the Prophet said that Tawbah will be accepted until a person dies. And we know for the people who are alive, Toba will be accepted, repentance will be accepted until the major signs start. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless you all and to increase you in khair. I've come now upon my hour. I am more than happy to hear your questions and comments. In the next few weeks, we're going to be layering a few more things and then getting into specific uh, instances related to the end of times, as well as going through the actual chronological order of things. May Allah subhanahu wa bless all of you and keep you safe and bring happiness and sweetness insha'Allah to your souls. Jazakumullah khairan and thank you Ahsan for the great notes. If there's any questions, I'm more than happy to take them now insha'Allah.